Before we give you guys this week's episode, we have some very exciting news. Can He Do That will be taping a live show at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. That's one year after the election that propelled Donald Trump to the presidency. The night will feature special guests like legendary Watergate reporter Bob Woodward, 2016 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold, national political correspondent Karen Tumulty, and a look at some of the biggest Can He Do That moments of the year. Tickets are on sale today, Friday, September 15th at 10 a.m. You can find them at LiveNation.com. Last week, Trump reached an unexpected debt ceiling deal with Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, two top Democrats. When we started planning this episode, we looked at what seemed like limited backlash from Trump's base and set out to cover exactly what Trump's willingness to work with Democrats might mean for future negotiations. But as things go in this nonstop news cycle, we found out the answer to that last question sooner than we expected. Wednesday night, Trump had dinner with Schumer and Pelosi, and after that dinner, the two Democratic leaders announced a major agreement with the president that would ensure protections for DREAMers and increase border security. But the deal would exclude a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, a signature Trump campaign promise. Now, the White House initially denied that any deal had been reached, but as details continue to emerge, it seems increasingly like Trump's willingness to work with Democrats may be part of a new approach. If it is, Will this new approach work? Is crossing party lines an effective way for a president to govern? Can Trump continue to work with Democrats without losing the support of his base? That's right. This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in this episode, we'll talk to Nick Troiano. He's the executive director of The Centrist Project about the ins and outs of our party system in this country and the risks of a system so ideologically divided. But first, we have the legendary Robert Costa here on the show. Robert is a national political reporter at The Post. He's also host of Washington Week on PBS on Friday nights. We're lucky to have him. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. So we talked to you back in March about party unity amongst Republicans and Trump in this unusual position as a president who doesn't really seem to subscribe to an ideology. How has Trump evolved since then in terms of his ideology or his decision making? Well, I don't know if it's an ideological evolution, because when I talk to people around the White House, I'm curious about this as well. I said, why is the president making these overtures to Democrats and to moderate Republicans? And I think in part, based on my reporting, it's because it kind of feels burned. He feels burned by his own party. When you think about health care and how that all unfolded this year, and I think he's looking for wins. He's not looking necessarily to be a centrist or to be some moderate or even be a Democrat. He's looking to be popular. And that drive for popularity is pushing him toward the Democratic side. Yeah. So last week we saw Trump make his first deal with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Tell us what happened then. So they put a lot of things together. Think of like a Play-Doh castle and you just keep putting these different things together. They put together the debt ceiling. They put together the budget. They put together the Harvey aid and they made kind of this mess of a bill. But guess what? That bill passed with over 300 votes in the House. Mm -hmm. And that tells you that there is a coalition in both parties to try to get something done that isn't perfect, but just get something done. And I think it tells us that both parties are really struggling to hold together themselves. And so in that environment, 
a lot of pieces are breaking off. And, and Trump, at times, not always, is going to be able to take advantage of that. And what was the Republican reaction to this initial meeting with Pelosi and Schumer? I mean, you say now that passed with three. It was weird. Votes, but it was weird. Right, they was weren't mixed. angry with Trump. Right. And it's just a really strange that President Trump can betray, in the traditional sense, his own base by cutting a deal with two villains on the Republican side, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He cuts a deal with them and the base doesn't flip out. Okay, but then things changed a little bit when Trump had dinner with Pelosi and Schumer on Wednesday night. What happened there? They had Chinese food and (laughs) chocolate cake. I'm still trying to figure out whether it was takeout Chinese from my favorite place, Chinatown Express. (laughs) Because we know Chuck Schumer loves Chinese food. This is a well-known fact on Capitol Hill. He's and a so New they, Yorker. He's a New Yorker. Take it. We, we could use better takeout in D.C., but that's another subject. <laughs> so they're having Chinese food. Pelosi, Schumer, President Trump, some staffers, and they're talking through DACA. They say, let's try to cut a deal, and they cut a deal. But it, it's been messy ever since uh, that dinner because both sides have kind of acknowledged they've brokered an agreement. But at the same time, the contours of that agreement are under scrutiny from both sides, and they're uh, under debate. In in short, here's what happened. They said, we're going to have a deal to keep the 800,000 undocumented younger immigrants here. And to do that, to have bipartisan agreement, we're going to agree to have a lot of border security, to put billions toward border security, but not the wall, not the massive border wall that President Trump made his signature promise on the campaign trail. So that's what that's the big story on Thursday in Washington. Can this fragile agreement hold together? And how are Republicans and his base reacting to this idea that maybe the wall won't come to fruition? I didn't get to sleep till like 2 (laughs) a.m. I mean, this thing broke around 10 o'clock after the dinner. And I'm sitting there watching my phone just light up. And it just kept vibrating, making sounds 11 o'clock, midnight, 1 a.m. And I said to myself as a reporter, I'm just going to start cataloging everything because the base was erupting. They were alarmed. They were confused. They were angry. And they remain angry on Thursday because they think immigration and what they call amnesty, which they mean is giving citizenship or a path to legalization for undocumented immigrants, was really the heart of the Trump campaign and the president's backing away from what that was. I've seen so many different reactions on the right. Ann Coulter, who wrote a book literally titled, In Trump We Trust, (laughs) said now everyone wants him to be impeached. But I think the thing that said it all, the headline on Breitbart, bright red letters, Amnesty Don. I mean, this is the Steve Bannon website. Steve Bannon just a few days ago in 60 Minutes said, I'm going to be Donald Trump's wingman. He said, we're never going to break with Trump. They broke with Trump on DACA on uh, Wednesday night and Thursday morning. Is it more about DACA or is it more about the failure to build the wall? I think it's both. Uh, more about the failure to build the wall. They, they wanted to see Trump as a deal maker, include the wall as part of the deal. Uh, but DACA, a lot of people see DACA in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as an, as an issue of compassion, that you had thousands of people who were brought here, often not on their own terms, brought by their families, and to throw them out of the country to deport them or ask them to self-deport is heartless in the view of some Democrats and some Republicans. The Breitbart wing of the Republican Party, their point of view in brief is immigration, illegal immigration, goes against the sovereignty of the United States, that citizens here in the United States should not have to compete with people who are here illegally for jobs, that people who are here illegally should not be 
in their view, rewarded for being here illegally by getting some kind of path to citizenship or a path to legalization. And by doing that, they see that as an affront, an affront to citizenship, an affront to the idea of sovereignty. That is the Breitbart view. Uh, and it, it, that's why they're erupting, because they hold that view. Does Trump's base want to see progress, though? Are they hoping Trump will just get things done, even if he has to work with Democrats to do so? I think they like the, the progress, though. We all wrote stories earlier in the year at The Post saying, oh, my gosh, Trump didn't get health care done. The base is not going to come out in 2018. The base is going to desert Trump. That hasn't happened. I'm not so sure this base wants what we in the media always think this base wants. We think they want to get rid of Obamacare. Uh, they, but guess what? The, the Trump base doesn't really want to get rid of Medicaid. They don't want to get rid of Social Security. They don't really mind shrinking the government in the same way House Speaker Paul Ryan does. And so we'll really have to sometimes pause as reporters. I'm speaking to myself even and say, our assumptions just don't work anymore. Our assumptions about what's going to be bad for a Republican or what's going to be bad for a Democrat, it just doesn't usually play out in those ways. We're seeing the erosion of the right-left dynamic in American politics. So often it was blue versus red, right versus left. Now so many arguments I cover in the White House and Congress are not about right versus left. They're about globalist versus nationalist. They're about being pro-trade or anti-trade. It's very much different fault lines. And uh, that's why I think President Trump's able to kind of move forward with these deals and it doesn't really upend the whole city. It's so interesting that you say that because my experience in this past election was that we were in some ways more partisan than ever before in the sense that you might be a moderate Democrat who has some ideas that align with the Republican Party, but you're kind of too afraid or too unwilling to abandon your team to admit that you agree with this particular Republican ideal. So how do those two concepts work together that we're sort of more partisan and less partisan than ever? I know. It's, it's, it's a smart point, and it's true. Put it this way. Democrats need Trump. And Trump needs Democrats. Formally, they all don't like each other, right? There's still this partisanship is still very evident in the kind of language we use to talk about politics. But Trump is going to need Democratic votes because there's a House Freedom Caucus in the House GOP, about 30 members, who say they basically will vote for nothing. So if you take away the GOP majority by 30 votes in the House, you're left with almost around 200 votes. That's not enough to get 218 for passage. So he needs Democrats. Democrats also need Trump. Who's been meeting with Trump this week? Senator Donnelly from Indiana, Senator Heidkamp from North Dakota, uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia. What do they all have in common? They're up for re-election in 2018. They're moderate Democrats. They're in states Trump won. Think about Joe Donnelly in Indiana. Trump wins his state by, I believe, 16 points. If Trump wins your state by 16 points and you're up for re-election the next year, you're really nervous. You're saying, my career's probably over unless I figure something out. Just to add some context here, historically, have we seen success when presidents reach across the aisle? Is this something that works? Uh, we've seen it before. I mean, you look at presidents a lot of times when they get stymied by their own party, they turn to the other party. Reagan did this in the 80s with tax reform, worked with the Democrats. Jimmy Carter comes in in the 70s, the Democrats in Congress. It's kind of like today, actually. When Jimmy Carter comes in in 77, Democrats control everything just like Republicans do now. And the Democrats on Capitol Hill in the 70s said to Carter, you're an outsider. You're not going to tell us what we're going to do. We're going to tell you what we're going to do, and you're going to sign it. Didn't really work out. Carter really struggled to build relationships. You look at President Clinton in the 90s. He comes in in January 93. 
and the Democrats control everything then. And he starts moving on down this really democratic direction. He starts talking about gays in the military. He starts doing huge health care reform with his wife, then First Lady Hillary Clinton. And so he does all these democratic things, and there's a lot of party infighting, and he raises taxes like the Democrats want in 93 and 94. And then what happens? In 94, the Republicans sweep. Newt Gingrich, the revolution. Clinton totally changes. Clinton goes from being this Democratic president, doing Democratic things, to doing welfare reform, a crime bill, doing all these kind of socially conservative things, school uniforms Clinton used to talk up ahead of the 96 campaign. So presidents change. A lot of times presidents come in and they work with their party. Then that relationship falls apart and they look for something new. So how has our country even reached this place of such deep ideological divide? And why do we have a two-party system to begin with? To explain the history and influence of our system and why it can be problematic, we talked to Nick Troiano, executive director of The Centrist Project, an organization dedicated to electing independent candidates. Here's Nick. Okay, so let's start really at the beginning here. How did we end up with this two-party system in America? Well, interestingly, and many people might not realize this, parties aren't mentioned in our Declaration of Independence, in our Constitution, any of our founding documents. In fact, the founders warned us against uh, devolving into political factions. I mean, Washington said so in his farewell address. John Adams said that he would consider it the greatest political evil under the Constitution for us to be divided into two parties, each concerting measures in opposition to each other. Uh, but we got here, you know, not long after Washington assumed the presidency. We, we had the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists split, and ever since then, there's been an evolution of a two-party system. And these private organizations have come to have a really significant impact, not only in our electoral system, but also within our governing institutions in the way that we uh, organize and administer the process. Right. So when you say private organizations, what are you referring to? The two political parties. I mean, they are not part of government. They are private associations that organize outside of government, and they're not part of the constitutional system that was designed by our founders. That's what I mean by private organizations. So can you talk a little bit about how those parties are funded? Sure. I mean, the political parties today both have their own sets of special interests on both sides, um, and they have their own sets of donors, um, particularly large donors, undisclosed donors. I mean, there's a plethora of ways that the parties uh, raise money uh, today. And that impacts how the people who seek nominations from the parties actually govern because they have an incentive to, to be responsive to those interests because that's how they have to raise the money to win their party primaries. So then when it comes to elections, what is the role of the party in finding these candidates, vetting these candidates, helping these candidates have a platform? How does the party work when it comes to elections themselves? So parties are involved in recruiting candidates. They're involved in providing electoral support through donors, through volunteers. And a lot happens behind the scenes, too, with what is now commonly recalled uh, as the political industrial complex, all of the operatives and vendors and campaign consultants uh, that work through the party to help elect those candidates. So they're very involved from the primary process through the election in trying to win elections and the main motivation is to 
maintain and grow their political power. And the trouble is for our democracy right now is that the point of winning elections ought to be to govern, not an end to itself. But what we've seen evolve is sort of the zero-sum game where winning seems to be all that matters. So I was at the Democratic National Convention this year. It was the first time I had actually gone to a political convention. And there were certain things I learned about how these parties work behind the scenes, one of which was the party platform, developing this platform, which happens at conventions, which I think the general public rarely hears about or reads. Can you talk a little bit about how the party platform comes together or what it's like behind the scenes, diving into the ideas and the ideals of a particular party? Right. The party platforms used to play a much greater role than they did today and used to be you know, a um, matter of a lot of subject and debate in the run-up to the conventions and what passed as the party platform was significant because it was more constraining to all the members of the party who were elected. Today, there's still this formal process of both parties adopting their platforms at the presidential conventions every four years, but it doesn't carry as much, you know, weight or attention as it used to. But in their ideal sort of form, they're supposed to be statements of where the party stands on issues of importance uh, of the day. And this year was particularly interesting because we had Bernie Sanders, uh, an independent senator, who essentially needed to run as a Democrat in order to gain any sort of momentum in the presidential election. Why is this? What kinds of things do party structures do that independent candidates just simply can't? Well, the parties used to be really important. You know, back in the day when communication and organizing was really tough, you know, the parties were able to um, be imperfect sort of aggregators of political positions such that when someone's on the ballot as a Democrat or Republican, you generally know what they believe because how else would you sort of easily find out? I, you know, I think we can call these parties, one's Barnes & Noble, the other's Blockbuster. They have outlived mm-hmm. sort of the, the utility of their time because now we can access information at our fingertips and we can organize with each other around particular issues. And so the real big remaining utility that parties offer is simply ballot access, which is big, particularly in the presidential election, and which is why you've seen a non-Democrat, Bernie Sanders, and a non-Republican, Donald Trump, have to enter the political primary process through both parties because they needed a way of getting on the ballot. That's the main advantage and main gift the parties are able to award the folks who win their primary simply a mechanism to get their name in front of voters on election day. It's very hard for an independent to be able to do that, especially at the presidential level. Right. So that's the sort of election piece of it. But what about party loyalty when it comes to governing? Is it helpful to have a caucus in Congress that's going to support your legislation if you're a president of a particular party? Is it less helpful if if you are loyal to a party and you can come to this middle ground and really create bipartisan legislation? How does party play a role in governing? Well, the parties used to play a constructive role in governing when they used to work together. Right. Well, we did some big things in the 20th century. We passed Social Security and Medicare, the highway bill. We reformed welfare. We balanced the budget. When you look at the votes on those pieces of legislation, you had votes from both sides. They found some common ground to get this done because there was some ideological diversity in the party. Back then, you had, you know, if you go back maybe 40 years, you had uh, 29 senators over 240 House members between the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrats. So there was a diversity of thought and a willingness to find some common ground in the middle. 
because of the role of money and media and the mechanics of our elections, that middle has fallen out. The parties today only see a way of governing by forcing through their agenda on party line votes. And so we saw that with healthcare, for example. And what kind of system do we want to live in where one party passes a major piece of legislation, a party line vote, therefore causing the other party to be committed to its outright destruction? Meanwhile, there are some common sense reforms that could be made to actually benefit Americans that's lost in the mix because of this tribalism between both sides. So the party system can work when the parties work together. Uh, They're not today, and that's why some new competition is needed. So, Robert, you mentioned that certain Democrats in specific states can benefit from spending time with Trump and winning him over. Are there any risks for Democrats in associating with Trump and working with him? There are risks because a lot of Democrats right now are agitated about Trump. And you look at the Democratic Party, it has similar problems as the Republican Party. Democrats who are, I call them, part of the resistance. They want to see people really fight President Trump. And so if you're a, a moderate Democrat going to the White House to have ice cream and take uh, selfies with Trump, some of your voters on the Democratic side are going, I don't like that. This guy, in the view of some Democrats, is an authoritarian. He is out of control. He's racially charged, if not racist, in the minds of some Democrats I've spoken to. So you may pay a cost by getting primaried on the Democratic side. We always talk about the Tea Party primary, and that's still a dynamic in the GOP. But you're going to see in 18, in House races and Senate races, Democratic base activists, progressives, maybe they were with Sanders in 2016, Bernie Sanders, and they're going to say, we don't like these moderate Democrats. We need to have the party really move to the left. So you're going to see some of these candidates being primary. But the calculation that moderate Democrats like Heidkamp and Donnelly are making is this. We don't care. We're in moderate states. We're in red states. Democrats are going to lose unless they're basically Republicans in spirit next year in a lot of these states. We don't care. Primary us space, but we want to win. And Schumer, the minority leader from New York, he's going to, he, he wants these, these Democrats to win. He doesn't want to see this primary happen, but primaries will happen. Now, is Trump moving in this direction to want to work more with Democrats, or is this a one-off, or is this part of Bannon's departure that he doesn't have that influence anymore? What do we attribute this to, and and is it going to continue? I think Steve Bannon being gone, Trump still talks to him, from what I can tell, based on my reporting. I think Trump, right now, he's not driven by the Republican Party as much. So Bannon is close to the Republican base. He's gone. Reince Priebus was chief of staff. used to be head of the Republican National Committee. He's gone. General Kelly is chief of staff at this moment, and Kelly's not an ideological figure. So you, and Jared Kushner is a kind of a moderate Democrat. And so these are the people around the president right now. So you add together the idea that the president feels so disappointed with his own party for failing him on Capitol Hill. You can see how this path is being paved. Could you assign an ideology to this White House if you had to? Is there one? I think it's celebrity populism streaked with nationalism and elements of hardcore republicanism. Wow. There's a lot there. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So to that point, we ask these questions a lot on this podcast, which is, are all of these pieces of Trump's decision making now strategic or is this sort of on a whim, absent of strategy? I think they're reactive. At the same time, there is a strategy to be successful and to get wins and to win re-election or to keep the House and the Senate. He doesn't think about politics in the way most people think about politics in the press or even in the political parties. He has a strategy in the sense that he knows it's not working and he wants to try something different. 
He's not gaming it out in the traditional way, but he's, he knows he hasn't been as successful as he wants to be. And his people tell me each and every day he just wants to see what else could stick to the wall. That brings us to our final question, which is always our can he do that question. And this week it is, can Trump work with Democrats and still maintain his base? He is working with Democrats and the base is with him, uh, but it's slipping away in part. I, the calculation I'm picking up in my reporting is that the president thinks, look, I want to make a deal on DACA. The Republicans haven't given me anything. And where are the Breitbart Republicans going to go? That seems to be the question that's asked privately when I talk to my sources. They say, OK, the conservatives are really angry about this DACA deal. But are they really going to go vote for the Democrats in 2018? Are they really going to go vote for the Democrats in 2020? And my response to them has been in conversation, true, they may uh, detest the Democrats even more than they detest President Trump's decision. But instead of voting for the Democrats in 2018, they may decide to just stay home. And so what we have to watch is not only the, the fiery tweets we see, but it is a sense of disappointment that could lead to a lack of enthusiasm in Trump's base in, in the sense that they're still with him in spirit but they're not doing the things that are necessary to keep Trump in power. All right, we'll stay tuned. Robert Costa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You guys can follow Robert on Twitter at Costa Reports. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. You guys have been listening to another episode of Can He Do That? For more episodes, you should visit wapo.st slash can he do that or listen wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks so much. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the capable and lovable Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.